Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lam, the host of this channel, and today we're going to be talking to Cynthia Ruder about her new book, Building Stalinism, The Moscow Canal and the Creation of Soviet Space. Hello, Cindy, and thank you for being on our podcast today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks, Sam. I'm very glad to be here and glad to talk about the book. Um, I'm an associate professor of Russian studies at the University of Kentucky. Um, I teach a variety of courses from Russian language courses to content courses that focus specifically on the Gulag um, and sometimes uh, 20th, 21st century lit courses. Um, this is my second book uh, about canals, my first being about the Bielamor Canal, uh, Making History for Stalin, the story of the Bielamor Canal, and I moved on to the Moscow Canal as a result of working on that project. So, so why is it important to study the Moscow-Volga Canal? Um, I, that's a question I think that comes up often, and I think the key reason is, well, two reasons probably. The first is that the canal still exists and is exploited extensively to provide potable water for Moscow, as well as electricity, uh, given the various electric stations positioned along the canal. Um, the second reason, I think, which for me especially is important, is because it revisits a very important moment, I argue, in the construction of Stalinism during the 1930s, and because of that also talks about or refers to the use of forced labor in the construction of this canal project. And it seemed to me that in discussing that project, it was a way to remember or to revive the memories of all of those people who were forced to build this canal that still operates. I think that's probably one of the, that's a testament to the people who built it, the fact that it still exists and still is heavily used. So why did the Soviet government decide to invest so much money, resources, and manpower into building the canal? And what were the expected ideological and material payoffs? I think the uh, expected um, and actually to some degree realized ideological payoffs of the Moscow Canal was to demonstrate physically that Stalinism was able to achieve that which could not be achieved under the, the czarist regime and that the power of the ideology, presumably, was enough to ensure that large construction projects, number one, but also the reconstruction of Moscow, number two, were achievable because of the buy-in um, to the, the buy-in of the ideological program. Um, I think when we talk about ideology, though, um, it gets a little bit slippery when we talk about the uh, Demitlog, the Gulag uh, forced laborers who built the canal, because I'm certainly not convinced, based on what I read, that everyone bought into the ideology. 
That said, that was not as important as the metaphorical and rhetorical um, talk about how successful the ideology was in getting this project completed. And of course, the true proof is that there was power in Moscow, electric power in Moscow and potable drinking water. You talk a little bit about Moscow becoming the port of five seas. What exactly is that and how ideologically important was that for the builders of the canal? Um, I think for the builders of the canal to a certain degree, but certainly for the Soviet leadership, um, this this um, trope of Moscow as the port of five seas did a couple of things. Number one, it meant that Moscow was accessible um, from all points on the globe, thanks to this access through the Moscow Canal and to these five seas. It also meant that the message from Moscow could be sent out all over the world in a most physical way through shipping goods uh, and people from Moscow to points within the Soviet Union and beyond. Um, it also helped support the idea that Moscow was the one true, at least in my reading, that Moscow was the one true Soviet, socialist, Leninist, Marxist capital, um, and that it would stand as the, um, just as that red star that it was used to symbolize Moscow on maps, it would stand as the center of this Soviet universe to which anyone could look for uh, ideological support, inspiration, um, or as an example of how one goes about creating this kind of capital city. So as with all dam projects, a fair number of people were displaced by the Moscow-Volga dam construction. How did they react to being displaced and how did this affect their perception of space? Uh, I think that some people, um, from what I've been able to ascertain, didn't mind it. Others, of course, felt that it was absolutely horrible because what was happening is that folks were being moved from areas that they and their families and their fellow citizens or village dwellers had occupied for centuries. And so this displacement, this physical displacement also produced emotional and psychological displacement, the cutting off of one's connection to the land that you have lived in, farmed, benefited from, profited by for many, many years. Um, there was a, a move to establish new settlements, for example, Ivankova, which was displaced by the construction of the Ivankova Dam and the Moscow Sea. Um, a new village was built, and of course, many people, their homes were transported by forced laborers to these new locations, so that while they had the homes that they used to live in in this new village, they nonetheless did not have the same land. And so I think that that was for those folks, uh, a, a difficult move to make on the one hand. On the other hand, it was an uh, emblematic event in my reading of the Stalinist ideology because what it was doing was literally washing away the past and constructing a new present and future. Um, in addition, with the... Um, the, this washing over, the submersion of cities 
on towns, uh, recreation areas, fields, cemeteries. It was part and parcel of this notion that Soviet power could overtake um, any landmass that it sought to conquer. And building the Moscow Sea, the canal, the dams was one way of accomplishing this. And once again, goes back to that notion of physically inscribing itself into the landscape, being it being by being it by submerging former villages and towns, or constructing um, locks, dams that rose up from the ground. You focus a lot on the use of forced labor in the building of the canal. How would you say that the use of gulag labor differs from, for example, forced serf labor used to build other monumental projects in Russian history? For example, Peter the Great St. Petersburg. You know, that is an especially um, appropriate and great, great question that I've had to confront and think about before when students have asked me about this as well. For example, a student who was from Egypt and who asked how gulag labor differed significantly from the people who built the pyramids or those who worked on the Suez Canal. And I guess my sense of this is that um, while there was ideology present in those other projects, and certainly a Petrine ideology, if you could call it that, with Peter the Great constructing St. Petersburg, um, I think that the Stalinist model differed significantly for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was a very strong ideological component that targeted particular groups within the population. It was not just culling forced laborers from the Russian population. It was focusing on uh, social miscreants, on enemies, purported enemies of the state, purported saboteurs, um, purported enemies of the people who needed to be separated from the general population and punished for their opposition or seeming opposition to the state. Um, I don't think that that kind of organization was in place when Peter the Great was building St. Petersburg or when the pharaohs were building the pyramids, even though there was ideology there. Um, I also think that, especially in the 1930s, and this fell away to some extent um, in post-war Stalinism, there was also the idea that a forced labor project would serve as a re-education tool and that in doing these labor projects, people would be reformed, that, that wonderful Russian word, Pirikovka. They would be reforged into new Soviet citizens as the result of their labor. And this certainly wasn't the case, for example, in the German concentration camps where extermination was the call of the day. There was no sense that anyone in the German concentration camps were going to be reformed, reforged into model Aryan, model German citizens. Whereas in the Stalinist labor camps, at least in the 1930s and afterward, there was this sense that you could become a true Soviet citizen by offering your more or less free labor uh, in service to the state. And I guess for me, that's the significant difference. The targeting 
of certain populations, ethnic groups as well, and the the parallel notion that you, uh, if you were a criminal, you could be restructured, right, remade. This reforging metaphor is very strong and certainly is concurrent with all the uh, industrial metaphors that were um, apparent and and pronounced during the 1930s. I don't know if that answers your question, but but that's the reading that I think best suits what was happening then. If I read your book correctly, though, no enemies of the people worked in Demetlog, right? No one sentenced under Article 58 was allowed to be that close to Moscow? Um, the, those sentenced under Article 58 initially were working in um, labor uh, settlements close to Moscow. Um, I think that it was a hard thing to not include those folks because they needed so many people to undertake this gigantic project. Um, those sentenced under Article 58 uh, also worked in the cultural production associated with the canal. So that you had people under Article 58 working in the offices of the journals uh, storming the work site and the library of uh, reforging, um, the newspaper reforging, Pidekovka, um, artists who were producing paintings at various points along the canal. All those folks were sentenced uh, under Article 58, but were able to work in their chosen field or in the, with their training, in spite of the fact that they were relatively close to Moscow. And I think that that's an interesting feature too. Um, once it was discovered um, that within the, the confines of Moscow that there were Article 58 prisoners working there, they moved those folks out, but they did end up working at other points along the canal route. The canal is over a hundred miles long. And so um, they, were found in the Volga region, where the Volga was joining with with the Moscow Canal, and at some points up there. But it was hard to avoid that. So I guess that leads me to my next question, which was, why did the Soviet government propagandize the canal within the gulag system and engage in cultural development for inmates and keep track of work records, etc., when they didn't really seem to care about the human cost of building the canal itself. Well, I think that that is one of those um, those perplexing contradictions of uh, pre-war Stalinism, that there was this uh, the, these twin ideas that, on the one hand, um, you didn't care if you exploited the labor of these people and you didn't care if you mistreated them or didn't feed them enough because that was the punishment for which they had been, um, the punishment that they had been assigned and that that was part and parcel of what it meant to be in a labor camp. On the other hand, you needed to um, get people to work. You needed to have a relatively enthusiastic workforce to undertake this gigantic project, especially when you were digging this canal in the early days by hand. And by that I mean with shovels, pickaxes, wheelbarrows, mules. The use of cranes and excavators didn't happen until the canal construction was at least a year, a year and a half, two years underway. And so you needed to have something to motivate these folks 
um, you could motivate them by demonstrating what was possible to achieve if you did a good job. And by that, I mean better rations, um, pocket money with the currency within the camp to go to a camp store and buy matches or cigarettes or, or add to your food rations. And the way to do that was to use these instruments, mostly the newspaper reforging, uh, to illustrate how one could achieve these goals and also to applaud people who were doing a good job. Um, they did this as well with posters too. I mean, posters were another way to convey these messages and also to demonstrate what it meant to be a successful canal soldier, as they were called. So how many of these canal soldiers do you think bought into this ideology? You know, I think ultimately it's impossible to say because we have so little information that comes directly from the majority of those who were on the canal site and those are criminal inmates. Um, I don't know. I can't, it would be, it would be, uh, it would be untruthful for me to say that I knew, you know, 30%, 40%, 50% of the people working on the canal bought into this whole program. The only way we can measure that is through the various uh, publications that were put out and those inmates who participated in them. Once again, we also at this point don't know uh, what those inmates who participated got in return and if they ended up surviving their terms on the Moscow Canal. And I realize that that doesn't answer the question, but I think it's one of those questions that at this point with the materials we have available and the archival access that we have, um, it's difficult to, to really come up with a number, percentage or exact number of who supported this and who didn't. I also think that one of the things that we overlook when we're looking at the 1930s is that many people, and once again, I can't give a figure, but many people did buy in because um, it represented belonging to a group, uh, supporting the cause, feeling part of a bigger, something bigger than yourself. And for some people who came up and matured, um, having been born shortly before and after the revolutions in 1917, um, they didn't know anything else. And so this looked to be a way to establish the Soviet Union as a world power and to do your small part in order to do that. Um, certainly there were lots of Arguably, there were lots of inmates who were working on the Moscow Canal who could care less for uh, ideology and who were only laboring in the hope that they could get their sentence reduced so that they could be released and get an early release. I think there were something like over 50,000 prisoners who managed to get an early release thanks to their labor. Um, but I think statistically, it, it's, it's hard to prove these things. Well, how many people, for example, engage with initiatives such as liter literacy campaigns? 
Um, this too is hard to determine because there were cultural um, posts along each of the, the sectors, the construction sectors of the canal. Um, there isn't, I have not been able to find, which doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but I have not been able to find data, for example, that shows how often a reading circle was used or how many um, prisoners came to a uh, right, a, a cultural sector in order to get taught how to read or in order to have access to books or in order to listen to music or learn how to play an instrument or whatever. Um, these uh, cultural uh, cells were publicized as being important to the development of the prisoners along the Moscow Canal, but I don't know if there exist attendance figures. Um, it would seem to me that there should be something like that, but the archive of the Moscow Canal itself at the Moscow Canal headquarters is a closed archive, and it's very difficult to gain access. Um, and I also think that one place where we might be able to find out about this information is in the personal files of some of those who were imprisoned on the Moscow Canal, but those personal files are not um, accessible unless you are a family member. And so there might be pockets of information that I simply was not able to discover in doing the research. I'm just sort of surprised that they didn't list it in Achoti. You know, I my book I wrote on the Constitution, and for every constitutional discussion circle, they had huge lists of attendance. They broke it down by gender. They sometimes even broke it down by profession. And when I look at stuff on Kohozi, they do that too for different reading and discussion circles. They have all sorts of information on attendance. Now, they may not tell you what they discussed or how long that happened, but they tell you everybody who came. So I'm just sort of surprised. Um, right. And I think um, actually uh, two things come to mind here. Number one, um, I would guess that that information is available. But I have to say that when I was doing the research for the book, um, I wasn't necessarily looking for that as much as I was looking for evidence of cultural production, especially inmate cultural production. And so the numbers were not as important to me for better or for worse um, as getting the basic information that there were in fact these opportunities for inmates. Um, for me, that was something that had not been studied uh, that well before in terms of the gulag. Um, and also, I'm coming at it not from the point of view of an historian, that's not my training. I'm coming at it from the point of view of culture and spatial issues. Um, and so it just wasn't something that I looked for. Um, to me, your question is superb and also suggests that one of the things that I hope I said in the book, um, that there's more to be said about the Moscow Canal and that this first study of it could not um, cover all of the information. And it seems to me that would be a great extension of my work for someone to undertake to see if it's possible to get this data, what it meant, who was participating, are there concrete numbers or whatever. It was just out of the, my purview. So what did these artistic depictions that you focus much of the book on about the canal, both created inside the camps and outside the camps, add to our understanding of the canal in particular and of Stalinism in general? 
Why are they important? The most simple or, in fact, simplistic answer would be um, the fact that they exist uh, attests to the the importance of this construction project, that the Moscow Canal was a subject at all for painting um, in particular, which is what I uh, talk about a lot, but also for literary works and and documentary literary works, um, attest to the fact of how important this project was and how it was advertised for its importance. Um, What I think it also illustrates about Stalinism was the, I hesitate to say whitewashing, but the casting of a forced labor project in a very positive, sanitized light. Uh, All of the depictions of the canal construction that I have seen by artists working within Dimitlag and outside of Dimitlag and writers working within Dimitlag and those uh, who are working outside of Dimitlag obviously construct a metaphorical, pictorial, literary space that applauds and celebrates Stalinism and does not pay any attention to, and understandably so, the, the negatives of this whole Gulag experience. I think in part that is because it was impossible to do that in the 1930s, that one of the elements of socialist realism was to present the Soviet reality in the process of becoming as impossible of as an aesthetic as that was. Um, but the, the motivation was to celebrate what was happening to advertise, if you will, what was happening, to demonstrate how this ideology was succeeding. In conjunction with the Moscow Canal, um, the head of Dimitlag, Simeon Hirin, was arrested before the canal opened. And he was one of many Moscow Canal personnel who were victims of the purges, especially in 1937. Well, what ends up happening there is you can't celebrate a canal that was supposedly supervised, that was supervised by supposed state enemies. And so in terms of the literary production outside of the canal, this put the kibosh on that because you couldn't say that Firin had done such a great job if you had, in fact, arrested him and Yegoda and some of the artists and writers who were working on the inner camp publications. And so this, I believe, presents precisely the contradictory picture of what was happening then. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that... I'm actually surprised that they stopped celebrating the canal, because I do a lot of work on the Constitution, and... A fair number of people that drafted parts of the Constitution, Bukharin being the most obvious, but also the original drafters of the original first draft, Yakovlev, Tetsky, Stetsky, and Tal, all also died in the repression. Um, but they continue to discuss it. I think partially there because you can shift all of the glory to Stalin. You know, it's the Stalin Constitution, and maybe that helps. But they, interestingly enough, they don't stop glorifying the Constitution. They have huge discussions of it in 1937 at the height of the repression before the election campaigns. 
Um, so it's interesting that they decided with such a big project like the, the Moscow Volga Canal to not glorify it or not shift credit for it to, for example, Stalin or you know, being a Stalinist idea or even Kaganovich, because you said he was instrumental in the, the metro and also at least kickstarting the idea of the Moscow Volga Canal. You know, I um, wonder why they did that. I certainly don't feel qualified to second guess Stalin and his uh, associates. Um, I think that part of what was going on is that the construction of the Moscow Canal was a singular, discrete project, whereas the Stalin Constitution was meant to be, at least my sense of it, um, was meant to be the roadmap of sorts of how the Soviet Union under Stalin was operating and would continue to operate. And so there was a long-term sense that this document was the, the Bible, if you will, according to which Stalin and the Soviet Union were going to operate. The Moscow Canal is not that. It, it's one specific construction project that um, enabled Moscow to survive, really, and to continue to survive even to this day. But it doesn't, I don't think, resonate in the same way politically which here I think is incredibly important, it doesn't resonate politically as the Constitution did. And I think that's why you can ignore um, some of the other authors of the Stalin Constitution, whereas with the Moscow Canal, um, it, it's also visibly present, and you can see it, and if you can see it, you can ask questions about it, and if you can ask questions about it, you can ask uncomfortable questions about it, and that it's best to ignore that then, rather than bringing up these difficult questions. Um, and related to that, for me at least, is the notion that if you're the person asking the questions, you put yourself in jeopardy just by asking those questions. So it's better not to ask. You accept the fact that it's there, and then you carry on. So your, one of your last chapters in the book deals with this idea of the monumentality of the canal and memory. Um, how are the two connected and what does that tell us about the Soviet regime? Yeah, I'm sorry. What sort of monuments, for example, are there on the canal? Because most you know, American canals don't have a lot of monuments on them. You know, what sort of monumental architecture are we dealing with? Uh-huh. Okay. Um... The monumental architecture that we're dealing with is first and foremost the statue to Lenin that still stands at the mouth of the Moscow Canal where um, the Moscow Sea, Volga River, Moscow Canal uh, intersect at the junction of the first lock and the Ivankova Dam. Um, this is this monument to Lenin you simply can't miss because it you can see it from afar. He towers uh, over... Well, at least now, he, he towers a bit over the trees. When the canal was first constructed, the trees weren't there, and so he was monumentally present um, when you entered or exited the Moscow Canal. The, the monument to Stalin, which was taken down in the early 1960s, um, the absence of that monument, I think, speaks 
almost as profoundly because you can still see the pedestal for that monument, its absence speaks as profoundly as the uh, ongoing presence of Lenin. The other monuments, if we can call them that, and I do think, I would argue that they're monuments to architecture, are all of the canal locks, each of which was designed by a prominent Soviet architect of the time, and each of which is different, such that the architectural styling, the architectural um, metaphors that the architects brought to those projects makes them monuments, in my mind, to not only the architects who design them, but to the canal laborers who build them. Um, this is especially evident if you're sailing on a boat in the canal and you see canal towers rising majestically above the water when you're in the lock um, and or leaving or approaching a lock that suddenly from this tree-lined waterway ahead of you, you see um, wonderfully constructed and architecturally interesting uh, towers that mark the entrance and exit to various locks. Um, so I think those monuments, such as they are, are still, uh, they still exist on the Moscow Canal and are still visible to anyone that takes a cruise on the Moscow Canal. Um, those monuments don't necessarily carve out memorial spaces. And when I talk about memory, I have in mind um, memorials dedicated specifically to the laborers on the canal. Um, there's one of those memorial spaces um, at Dubna, which is a, a stone, an engraved stone with some flowers around it, a granite rock, I guess you would call it, boulder. Um, another is the cross that was put up on the banks of the canal in uh, Dimitrov, uh, marking uh, the canal's construction. Um, and then another is the stone placed at the base of this steel cross that's on the banks of the Moscow Canal in Dimitrov. Um, I, those memorial spaces, as well as the chapel that was built by the Moscow Canal Museum in Yahrama, are dedicated not to the designers and not to the, the party elite and not to the um, directors and those responsible for managing the Dimitla camp, but are instead dedicated to the people who built the canal. Um, the, the official figure that one finds in the archives for those who died building the Moscow Canal is, what, over 22,000 people. Um, it seems to me that with a labor force that huge at various times during the construction project, the death toll has to be higher. Well, you said in the book that you thought that maybe they fudged the... Um the figures, basically, that they would account only for certain types of death, not people who died later after uh, you know, long-term injury or long-term illness or prolonged health, you know, toll that took place during their their term. So then, you know, probably workplace accidents or that they had this tendency to actually chase people off the canal site and let them go die in the woods so they didn't have to count them. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think that um, when you're charged with this huge project, and you're not necessarily given everything that you need to do this project. And by that, I mean, you know, plenty of excavators and mechanized 
um, industrial equipment to help you dig this canal, you cut corners wherever you can. And one easy way to cut corners is to not account all the people that have died or to abandon people who were on the verge of dying so that you no longer bore any monetary or, or uh, social responsibility for them. Um, the archivist that I worked with, uh, um, uh, Ivan Kakurin, um, told me repeatedly that the 22,000 plus figure that he was he came up with, he was the person who came up with this figure, is based on the actual documents in the in Garth in the State Archive of the Russian Federation. Um, the problem, though, is that there were documents that were preserved after the canal's construction, but were destroyed when the Germans invaded um, in 1940, 1941. And as the Germans got closer to Moscow, a lot of the documentation that was from the Dmitlov camp was destroyed wholesale. It was supposed to be moved to another place and it was destroyed. And it could very well be that in those records are additional data that show uh, a more accurate count of those who perished in the canal. But that's merely conjecture. You know, I have no absolute proof for that. So at this point, it's just a matter of coming up with suggestions or suppositions as to what actually happened. Well, and you're assuming that whoever made the reports was honest in the first place. I do a lot of work with collective farm statistics, and they cook the books routinely. Um, and then you end up with weird situations where they've given, for example, the regional committee data on how much land they have, but they've lied about how much they've land they've reclaimed. So they end up with um, crop planting plans that are larger than the square acreage of the actual cohos. Um <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I think what you just described, I have no doubt that that also happened uh, at Dimitlog, also happened on the Moscow Canal construction site. I mean, it's no accident that tufta became such a widely used vocabulary term in part starting with the construction of the Bielamor Canal, because I think tufta permeated all of these projects. And, and you and I both know that in, in, in many ways, that was um, an official's way of self-preservation. That, that you the books so as to show that, oh, yes, I'm doing a good job. I'm fulfilling my plan. I'm doing what you told me to do when, in fact, the reality differed from that significantly. Well, and it's often not that they didn't want to. They simply couldn't. You know, they weren't, you know, superheroes. They couldn't fly around and, you know, plant all of these seeds or trout. You know, these poor people were trying to do so much with so little. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that the Moscow Canal Project is, is no exception to that rule. So I guess the question with the monumental architecture of the Moscow Canal, particularly devoted to the workers, is when was that constructed and by whom? I assume certainly not under Stalin. Is this Khrushchev era? Is this post-Soviet monuments erected to the laborers who died? And which organizations did it? Post Certainly post-Soviet and um, starting in the late 90s as the result of more information becoming available and actually as the result of people, for example, in Dimitrov beginning to take an interest in this canal that runs through their city and investigating the, um, the history of it. 
Um, I think we have to, to thank uh, Nikolai Fyodorov, who was a newspaper editor in Dimitrov, who was the one person who single-handedly brought the topic of the Moscow Canal back into the light, so to speak. And it's thanks to his research and his newspaper articles and conversations with people in Dimitrov and documenting of where the Dimitrov camp was in Dimitrov that this conversation began. It was also, I believe, under his instigation that the first monument or first memorial, I would say, to the canal builders um, was erected in Dimitrov in the late 1990s. Subsequently, other people, for example, uh, Mikhail Bulanov, took up this cause and wanted to explore the history of the Moscow Canal. And they were instrumental. He was instrumental um, while he was alive. And then people with whom he worked in Dubna to plant that large granite stone as a, a headstone, so to speak, in Dubna in memory of the people who built the canal. Um, the only, I, this also all happened, of course, with official approval. I mean, you can't do these things without the people in charge saying, yes, you can do it. You can't just, you know, erect a 10-foot steel cross or 12-foot steel cross on the banks of the Moscow Canal without someone saying, yes, you can do that. And that certainly was the case in building the chapel on the territory of the Yahrama district offices of the canal, which is also the same place that the Museum of the Moscow Canal is located. Um, there, officials of the canal and of the Dimitrov region, I believe the governor of the Dimitrov region or the head of the Dimitrov region, um, gave permission to do that. But that too that chapel was built in 2007 to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Moscow Canal. And so was Memorial involved in any way? Um, I think that Memorial, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I think probably local folks who were uh, part of the Memorial movement were part of that, but I don't, think based on what I know and based on the conversations I had that Memorial was instrumental in constructing both the Moscow Canal Museum and the chapel that's on the territory of the Yakarama district headquarters. Um, I do think that the Fyodorov, for example, did work with Memorial um, and relied on some of their archival materials to do his own work. And so in that regard, they certainly supported his initiatives to remember these people as part of their overall, obviously overall function. Um, most recently, this group of um, gentlemen who run the MoscowVolga.ru website, um, they haven't constructed anything physical, but what they've done is they've created a website that in many ways is arguably a memorial to all the people who built the Moscow Canal. What they've been able to do is contact relatives of inmate laborers and find out about the personal stories of those people. And bit by bit, person by person, they're building a catalog of um, biographical information about these Moscow Canal laborers. And I think in its own way, that is a, a memorial. I mean, granted, it's a virtual memorial space, but a memorial nonetheless, or an attempt to reclaim the memory of these people on this site. So interesting, 
So I guess this brings me to my last question for today. What is the legacy of the canal today? You know, that is a fascinating question, the answer to which depends on who you ask. Um, I think for the guys who run the Moscow Volga Rue website, the legacy of the Moscow Canal is both as a um, contemporary testament to those who built it and as a um, functioning canal, but also its legacy is um, as one of the most permanent, visible, physical manifestations of the um, terror of Stalinism. And you don't necessarily get that by looking at the buildings, but the fact that they exist is a result of Stalinist terror. And I think that's one of the legacies. Um, another legacy, it has to do with those people who currently run the Moscow Canal and have been running it since it opened in 1937. Um, the people who work on the canal today are paid terrible wages, but have a sense of pride in their ability to keep this waterway functional and to keep it supplying water and electricity to Moscow, that that too, I believe, is part of the Moscow Canal's legacy. The fact that people are willing to um, continue to work on its survival and functioning is part of that legacy. Um, I guess the other thing is that the Gulag legacy of the canal, just like the Gulag legacy of so many things in Russia, um, is highly problematic because in my reading, Russia has still not made peace with, or if it's ever possible to do that, or um, managed to understand and publicly talk about the gulag in a way that uh, I think would be satisfactory. Um, this is especially troubling when you start to hear about people who believe that Stalin was the greatest ruler um, in recent history or that the lessons of Stalinism um, should be looked at again and reapplied to Russian society. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's really hard for me to answer that question because I think that there is such a tangled web um, behind what happened and currently what is happening, that it's hard to parse out exactly what this legacy is. I, I don't know if I've answered your question adequately, and I apologize if I haven't, but the, the, the whole Gulag legacy has yet to be thoroughly examined in Russia, and I don't know if it ever will. Um, and some people might ask, well, why does it need to be? Um, and it seems to me it needs to be because it was such an integral part of Soviet life for, for 40 years, 40, almost 50 years. And, and to not deal with that is not dealing with an essential part of the country's history and also one of the formative experiences that has created the country that we have today. Well, out in Kirov... So Kirov was a region of uh, exile, even going back to the Tsar. You know, they have monuments to people like Saltykov, Shedrin, and Gertsen, who was exiled here. Um, and both of them hated Kirov, apparently, at the time, called Vyatka. So there's, you know, I think a longer legacy of 
you know, this displacement of people using physical exile as punishment in Russia and also you know, forced labor. Uh, weirdly enough, uh, Zerzhinsky was actually in the forced labor camp under the czars up here in Kai district in the Kirov region. They have now built a dom musée to Zerzhinsky, which is equally problematic. <laughs> um, so I think it's a longer legacy than perhaps just the Soviet period. Um, and I don't know that the Russians think of it as odd since it has been such a part of Russian history. I mean, sending people into exile has been since Ivan the Terrible, you know, a way to deal with people you didn't like. Well, you know, I, I think on the one hand that you're correct, that there is a historical precedent for this. And clearly this was happening long before the Soviets came to power. I guess the difference for me is the widespread wholesale use of exile, forced labor, forced resettlement that happened under Stalin. From the special settlers to the labor camps, to the forestry camps, to the mines in Kolyma, under the czars, it was never as widespread um, as it was under Stalin. I think that's because they lacked the infrastructure to do so. You know, the Soviet Union had the use of modern railway and census technology, which they used to keep track of people better and to move them quicker. I'm not sure that the czars would have done differently had they had the ability to do so. Well, yeah, I guess for me, though, I never, and and this is an area, of course, that I'm not as well versed in. Um, I, I never had the sense, though, that under the czars, there was a, a sense of, um, deporting or or categorizing or inflicting punishment on large groups of people. Maybe they would have done that. I mean, who knows? Now it, we'll never know if they were to do that. But I think that there was a certain level of terror that was imposed on all of society during Stalinism that was absent under the czarist regime. Um, and this sense that at any moment you too could be victimized by the system and could be separated from your family or incarcerated or killed or resettled. Um, I, I just don't see that as being as prevalent as Zara's, in Zara's history, number one. And number two, I think the ideological element that was introduced by Lenin that we need to find and, and um and extricate our enemies from our society or else we're not going to be able to build the society we want to was not as well developed in czarist times. Um, I agree with you that transportation networks were not as well developed then too, but I would argue that the people who were forcibly resettled into Northern territories who were plopped on boats or on makeshift rafts to get them to the middle of nowhere certainly did not benefit from a more developed transportation system um, that happened on Soviet power. And if anything, they were transported to their places of resettlement in the same way that people were in the czarist era, so that there was no improvement in dumping people in the middle of nowhere, whole families, especially with children in the middle of nowhere to resettle them once they had been forcibly removed from their villages and their farms and accused of being kulaks. Well, I think the difference might be in the, the treatment of criminals versus political 
prisoners. I would agree with the political prisoners. I mean, you know, people like Gerritsen and Sotikov Shedrin were at some point in time political prisoners, but they were dumped in some place they didn't like, but they had houses, they went to balls, they, you know, uh, had Gerritsen started a library here. But I think for criminals, I recently did an interview with Jonathan Daly on criminal law in Tsarist Russia. Uh, it was horrible. Lots and lots of horrible body mutilation, way more than I needed to know. Um, and it was quite common, unfortunately, to basically chain the prisoners together and force march them to, uh, you know, Vyatka or further, and lots of them died. So I think the treatment of the criminal class probably didn't change, but I think the treatment of politically suspect people probably did. Uh, but you see, here too, I would note a significant difference. And this was especially prevalent in the 1930s, although it did not disappear completely from the gulag structure. And that was the criminals were the inmates in the gulag who were targeted for re-education, not the political prisoners. The political prisoners were viewed as hopeless, that they had a completely different ideology and they could never be reforged into new Soviet citizens. Whereas the criminal prisoners had the potential to be made into model Soviet citizens as a result of their labor. Um, and so I, I think that that too is a significant difference between the, the pre-Stalinist or pre-Bolshevik and post-Bolshevik experience. That doesn't mean that in and of itself the existence, day-to-day -day existence, was any better because obviously it wasn't. That that criminal prisoners were physically mistreated in both systems. But I do think that a mechanism was introduced to address criminal reformation in a way that did not apply to political prisoners. The other thing too is um, the Kulaks, for example, as a class, and, and Lynn Viola has written about this so well, um, were considered uh, or punished as uh, political prisoners, but faced a fate far worse, I would, you could argue, than someone who was relegated to a camp. Um, and, and they weren't really, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but, but to me they're atypical political prisoners because they weren't taking an ideological stand. They were they were farming, and, and that ideology was viewed as contrary to the, the prevailing ideology. And for that, they were punished and, and extricated from their militants. I mean, you certainly would know about this more than I, working on Kalmozis. So... Interestingly enough, in the Kirov region, partially because we are very, very economically marginal, uh, we're the land of the green tomato, <laughs> the evergreen tomato. We had snow in June this year. Um, the Dekulak campaigns in Kirov do not seem to have been as bad, for example, as they did in places that were more economically significant like Ukraine. So I think there's a lot of regional difference, and I think a lot more work really needs to be done to see how different the treatments really were. Oh, I agree with you 100%, which is why Steve Barnes' book was so welcome, because it was focusing on Kazakhstan. Um, and it seems to me that regional studies are incredibly important in understanding. And I guess, you see, I guess this is the other thing that, for me, sets the gulag apart. And that is the... Um, the lack of uniformity in gulag experience but also the huge territory that the Gulag covered. 
um, you know, sending people to Varkuta and sending people to Narilsk and Pichura and Kolima to extract minerals or do uh, logging operations or whatever. There's such a diversity of experience that it really to fully understand the Gulag, you have to understand all of those individual experiences or at least know about them which is in some ways an impossible task given the, the diversity and the space that the Gulag covered. Well, thank you, Cindy. I think we've taken up quite a bit of your time. Just, um, would you like to tell us about what your next project is or are you taking a little break? Um, I have a couple ideas in mind. One of them uh, is a return to the Moscow Canal. I'd like to in particular look at two artists who were especially prolific in their work doing paintings and drawings um, and graphic art on the Moscow Canal. That's Konstantin Savaryevsky, who ended up dying um, on the canal, and uh, this Vasily Yolkin, who survived his incarceration on the canal and went on to a productive career as an artist. Um, but the other direction I'm thinking about moving in is looking at um, Sotsgrada, in particular Biryozniki, and maybe Solitalamsk, in the Perm region that were initially places of uh, labor camps and forced resettlements um, to examine those spaces. What's the legacy of that Gulag past on those contemporary cities? Um, one of the most visible legacies of the Gulag past, I would argue on Biryozniki, are the um, increasing number of sinkholes that are developing in the city as a result of the potash mines that were started um, during the Gulag era that are now collapsing. And the city infrastructure-wise is having a huge problem with that. I think even threatening its existence. And so for me, that would be an interesting question from the point of view of, of the spaces and the spaces that were made and how those spaces have been repurposed to see what, once again, going back to the question of the Gulag legacy, what is the legacy of the Gulag there and how is it realized spatially? Well, that sounds very interesting. Thank you, Cindy, for being with us. Um, and so I guess we're gonna sign off here. Thank you for talking to us and goodbye. Oh, goodbye. And thank you, Sam, for speaking with me. I really appreciate it.